We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maria. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's Virtue Class. This week we're going to be looking at the problems of Maria Montessori. Now, this is going to be a two-part series. The first part, we're going to look at Maria Montessori. Now, to do that, in order to understand the thinking of Maria Montessori, we have to understand the foundation upon which Maria Montessori based much of her thinking. Maria Montessori was a theosophist and is from the science or the teachings of theosophy that Maria Montessori formed much of her psychology and her pedagogy. In the following week, we will look at a very popular program called the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. This program was made using the Montessori method and also incorporates ideas from Theosophy and Maria Montessori. Now, to understand the problems of Maria Montessori, we have to have a basic understanding of philosophy and how the corruption of higher sciences can corrupt the lower sciences. So, on the right, let's look at the different hierarchies of being. So at the bottom, we have the most lowest, a specific type of thing, a trout. Next, we have fish. All trout are a type of fish. Then we have animals. All fish are a type of animals. Then living things, the material being, and being. Now the truths, all the truths of living things apply to animals and to fish and to the specific trout. But all the truths of the trout are not true about all living things or about all animals. Now the same is true with being. Being is the most general and highest category of things. Therefore, the truths of being apply to all things that exist. For being, we have a certain science called the science of metaphysics. Now, science, in the way we're using it, is a Aristotelian definition of a science. A science is merely a body of knowledge about a certain topic. So the study of being, insofar as is being, is called metaphysics. Next we have philosophy of nature, or physics. And that is the study of material being, insofar as it is motion. And then psychology, the study of living things, or the study of souls. Now, in order to be, be able to apply these principles to Maria Montessori and her problems, we must understand the idea and concept of a subalternate science. Now, a subalternate science is a science that receives its first principles from a higher science. So let's use engineering for an example. Engineering is a subalternate science because the principles in engineering come from physics, chemistry, and math. Let's say I'm in an engineering class and I want to learn how to build a bridge. And let's say in this engineering class, I'm asking very fundamental questions about physics, chemistry, or even math. The professor is going to say, you're an engineering class. Before you even got in this class, you should have studied and learned the basic principles of physics and chemistry before you got in here. It is not proper to the engineering class to teach you these fundamental sciences. Let's look at this another way. Let's say I am the most perfect engineer. I know all the truths of engineering. I also know all the truths of physics and all the truths of chemistry. But my math has a fundamental flaw. I believe two plus two is 4.1. 
even though I know physics, chemistry, and engineering perfectly. When I go to build that bridge with this faulty high science or fundamental science of math, the bridge is going to collapse. Now, because math is such a high science and it's used, the truths of math are used by the lower sciences. If the entire team, not just the engineers, but the accountants and everyone working on that bridge has a fundamental mathematical problem or error that four, two plus two is 4.1. There's not going, just going to be problems in the construction of the bridge and its strength. There's gonna be a problem in transporting enough materials to build the bridge. And the accountants are gonna have a hard time generating enough money for the bridge and properly paying the people they owe money for the bridge. The point of this is that corruption of the higher sciences as math or metaphysics will trickle down to the lower sciences. Now you can see that below there are even lower sciences such as philosophical anthropology and moral theology. So let's look at physics or philosophy of nature. Now from understanding the nature of a thing, we connect this to God. God is a source of all nature. He causes nature to be a certain way. Since he causes nature to be a certain way, insofar as he wills things to be a certain way, by looking at nature, we can see God's desire, God's law. And we apply this to philosophical anthropology and psychology. We can see based on man's nature, how he ought to act. We call this natural law. And then this becomes part of, when it becomes natural law, this becomes part of moral theology. So we corrupt physics. We corrupt the lower sciences and end up having problems in morality. Okay, so fundamental principles. So when we look at Maria Montessori, she is known for her pedagogy. Now you can't just create a pedagogy. Before you create a pedagogy, you first have to have a philosophical anthropology or a study of man, who he is, what he is. Then from knowing that, you understand how he thinks, how he comes to know the world around him. And become how he comes to know, how he comes to learn, you can then create a pedagogy or form of teaching that is built upon that knowledge. Now let's take two classic examples of knowledge, Plato and Aristotle. Plato had the idea that all knowledge pre-exists with the man and merely needs to be recalled or drawn out. So man has all this knowledge, but when he thinks he comes to know new things, it's not that it's something external that was brought into him. It is merely man recalling something that was always deep within. Now Aristotle is very different. Aristotle believes that man begins as a blank slate. He knows nothing. And man only comes to know knowledge when it is given to him by something extrinsic to him. This can be through the senses learned by the world around us, or even God could impose knowledge on man from above. Now, whether you believe in the Platonic idea that all the knowledge is within you, how you're going to teach someone is going to be very different then stop when you believe someone is a blank slate and you have to teach them all the new information. All right, so to understand how this applies to Miriam Montessori, we have to look at the Theosophists, which was an organization that Maria Montessori was a part of. And it is their principles that Maria Montessori used to create her pedagogy. So who were the Theosophists? Well, if you look to the left, you can see the Theosophist. That's one of their magazines. And you can see they're involved in occultism and spiritualism and other secret sciences. So the Theosophists are a Gnostic group and a part of the cult. One of the ideas of Theosophists is that they're going to restore the true religion. They believe that back during the time of Plato, there was this ancient religion, uncorrupt, that was known to many. However, as time went on, it got lost. Only fragments remain nowadays. 
these fragments exist in the sacred texts of the major religions, such as the Bible or the Quran, you can find fragments of the true religion. They also claim there are these people called the masters, who were people throughout history that had some special knowledge of the true religion that other unenlightened people do not have. Now, because they believe that there is this true religion that's been lost, they believe that one day all the religions of the world, the major religions, will be replaced with a true religion upon a certain time. Now, the Theosophists also have certain doctrines that they believe in about their religion. And one of the big fundamental doctrines was their belief in evolution. And not just a Darwin evolution we're used to. They believe in something we're going to call mystical evolution. And this mystical evolution started about 30 years after origin of species. And the Theosophists were the first theistic evolutionists. They actually criticized Darwin for being a materialist because really Darwin just believed in the evolution of the body. But the theosophists, they believe in spirits, they believe in souls. And therefore they believe that if man has a soul, you can't just have the evolution of body. You have to have evolution of body and of soul. So their evolution is a little bit different. It's not just based off a of chance, but they believe that it is a guided evolution. It's ultimately guided by the higher power, some sort of God. Now another doctrine or lack of doctrine that they have is that there's no dogmas. There are no teachings that you have to adhere to to be a theosophist or a member of the Theosophy Society. But there is one teaching that all must agree upon or adhere to. And that is that all are working together for the brotherhood of humanity. And this, because this brotherhood of humanity is this important goal, they tend to be very much involved in and desiring to create a one world government. Now, what is this brotherhood, this desire to work for the brotherhood of humanity? What it says is that you can have any religion you want, but you're going to put our working together as man above your individual creed. So our, un our, um, our unity as man is more important than the doctrines and decrees of your individual religion. Now, the leaders of theosophy are two really main people. There was Helen Blavatsky. She was the one who started it along with another man. And eventually there was Annie Besant. Annie Besant was originally a Fabian socialist but she was then looking for a more spiritual explanation of her life. So she joined Theosophy, where she could hold the, the same ideas, but more of a mystical experience. And Annie Besant would eventually become a friend of Maria Montessori. Annie Besant, or first Helen Blavatsky, would be president of the Theosophy Society, which would later be handed on to Annie Besant. All right, now, as we talked about, the Theosophists believe in this secret knowledge. So Theosophists are a form of Gnostics. Now you see the chart above, and what I'm trying to explain is that whether or not Maria Montessori or anyone is a Gnostic is actually, or sorry, a Theosophist is not important. So Theosophist is not just a religion. It's an organization that you have to be a part of. Now, some people say, let's say I'm a Catholic. Someone could say, I believe in all the things the Catholic Church believes in, therefore I'm a Catholic. Not quite. The Catholicism is certainly a rule of beliefs, but it's also an organization that you have to be a member of. You could hold to all its decrees, but if it's ex you're excommunicated, you're not a Catholic. The devil knows the Catholic truths better than anyone but he is certainly not a Catholic. Now the word Christian, though it originally really just applied to Catholics, has been used to refer to anyone with who believe in a certain Christology. Therefore, regardless of the organization you're part of, 
you can define someone as a Christian or a theist. The same is true with Gnosticism. Though people may not actually be a member of a Theosophy Society or actually be a Manichaean, someone is dangerous to the faith because they hold the Gnostic ideas that are found in these groups. And even if one does not a, is not a card-carrying member of the Theosophy Society, if one has these Gnostic ideas that come from Theosophy, they are just as dangerous. Below is a great quote from Hans Urs von Balthasar. Though he had some problematic ideas and very dangerous thinking in some of his theology, his introduction to St. Irenaeus' book, Against Heresies, very accurately explains what we are experiencing with the problems of Maria Montessori and Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. He states, so-called gnosis was an erroneous temptation in the early Christian church. By contrast, persecution, even the bloodiest, posed far less of a threat to the church's continuing purity and further development. So the people who are actually killing Christians, not that big of a threat. The people who were a huge threat were the people who were in the church saying they were Catholics but were actually heretics and Gnostics. He continues, Then like a vampire, the parasite took hold of the youthful bloom and vigor of Christianity. What made it so insidious was the fact that the Gnostics very often did not want to leave the church. Instead, they claimed to be offering a superior, more authentic exposition of Holy Scripture. So for the most part, Gnostics do not have their own group that they just stay in. They go into the different religions. The Theosophists were criticized and known for joining Buddhists, Hindus, and supposedly corrupting all these world religions, especially Christianity. All right, so let's go back to our, um, the view of evolution in the theosophist view. We'll call this mystical evolution. Now, Charles Darwin, his idea of evolution is really just a material evolution. It's just a view of physics, material things. But the theosophists, they believed in body and soul. They were not materialists, which means that their idea of mystical evolution is not a principle of physics. It is a principle of metaphysics. So let's look at, right here we can see the two different types of evolution. On the left, we have the atheistic evolution or Darwinian evolution. And the right, we have the theosophist evolution. They're very similar. The only difference is that at the bottom, God pre-exists. And in the end, the theosophists mean, believe that man evolves into God. So here we have a chart of the various species that man supposedly goes through according to the theosophist. Now, you see that man evolves in different stages, or we'd say has different souls. Now, if man has different souls, then that means that man has different natures and that natural law changes with time, which means that the theosophists believe in moral relativism. In the earlier stages, you have supposedly man was asexual. Eventually, he becomes a sexual creature, and then man evolves into pure spirit. Now, each of these souls are going to have natures, which means that natural law is changing throughout time. Morality is not in stasis. It keeps changing. Now, we also see that man is supposed to evolve into the higher soul. That is his whole purpose. Now, normally when we look at the metaphysical end of man, we see that man was given general faculties or even an animal, a bunny, to produce more of that same species. And the perfection of the bunny, of those generative faculties, is to produce more bunnies. But in this evolutionary understanding of man, we have a new end. The purpose of man's reproductive faculties 
is to not to create more of the same being, but it is to create the next soul, the, the higher soul in the chain of evolutionary development. This means that if we produce a species, uh, offspring that are equal or, or lesser in terms of biological perfections, we have doing, go, doing something that's somewhat contrary to natural law because by your nature, you're supposed to be producing something greater. Therefore, eugenics becomes not just something that one can do, it becomes a moral good, something that one ought to do, something that is desired by God. Doctrines change with evolution. So we, right here we have Alice Bailey, and she's criticizing people for thinking that the truths of the Bible, how they applied in the past, could still apply to a modern civilization under a different age and a different time. Right here we have a clear examination, clear, clearly stated that the theosophists believe that morality changes and is relative. Here we have Alice Bailey encouraging eugenics. It is now evident that beyond a certain point, the planet cannot support humanity. There's too many people. The future will shift from the urge to produce large families to that of producing quality and intelligence in the offspring. Why? Thus, transferring the whole concept onto a higher turn of the evolutionary spiral. It is because of evolution and our need to evolve into higher beings that we need to start producing quality and intelligence in the offspring. Now, another person that is known for the same type of thinking was Talhard de Chardin. Though he denied ever being a theosophist, he held many of the ideas of the theosophist. In many ways, he perfected the theosophist doctrines. Where the theosophists just believed man was evolving into God, Talhard de Chardin took it the next level further and said the entire universe is evolving into one single unified being or God. He called this the Omega Point. Now, Talhard de Chardin was a Catholic priest, a Jesuit, one of the more academic orders. You have to receive two doctorates to become a Jesuit. He stated, The birth of a new faith of the world, I believe, only Christianity can carry it out. So something other than Christianity. I am convinced of it. The religion of the future, a new religion, is on the point of springing forth from a new Christology. So we're going to have to have a new understanding of Jesus Christ. Something that is different than was passed on to us from the apostles. It is worth noting that many modern theosophists, if you go online and look for, through their journals and writings, they love Talhard de Chardin. Because though he may have not been a theosophist, he was a Gnostic. Talhar continues. The world, the value, infallibility, and goodness of the world. This is definitely the first and the only thing in which I believe. Now, when you hear this, you will probably wonder, how could he be a creation? How could he be a theist or even a Christian? if all he believes in the world. To understand that, we have to understand how the theosophists and Talhard de Chardin believe you grow in holiness. Now, what is holiness? Really, holiness is to the degree to which we are like the most perfect, to the degree to which we are like God. Now, how can we become more like God? Well, there's actually two ways. There is a finite way, and there's an infinite way we can become like God. Now, let's look at the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, technically, there is a way in which the angels are superior to the Blessed Virgin Mary. St. Thomas talks about how the angelic nature is superior to the human nature because the angelic nature is pure spirit where human nature is body and soul. Therefore, insofar as an angel has an angelic nature and is purely material, by its nature, it is superior to the Blessed Virgin Mary. However, the difference between 
an angel and man, it's only a finite and slight increase in perfection. To really increase in holiness, to increase in holiness on an infinite level. There is nothing on earth that can do this. There is only one way we can become like God in an infinite matter, and that is by receiving sanctifying grace. The sanctifying grace doesn't come from the world, whether it's brought down directly from God and into our soul. It is only through sanctifying grace that man truly becomes holy. Though the angels might be superior to Mary in a finite matter through their existence and through their nature, Mary is vastly superior to the angels by an order of magnitude, according to the grace that flows with her. This grace allows her to love God on a supernatural level, making her far superior to any mere angel. So, was Talhard de Chardin a Christian? Well, he certainly sounded like one. He talked about creation, spirit, evil, God, the cross, the resurrection, parousia, charity, but he says, all these notions, once they are transposed to a Genesis dimension, and by Genesis he means through evolution, become amazingly clear and coherent. So, like the Gnostics, Telhard de Chardin takes these Catholic or Christian terminology and words from Scripture, and he distorts them, and he re-understands them, not according to sacred tradition, but according to his new metaphysics, his new metaphysics based on mystical evolution. One example of this is his idea of the incarnation. For the incarnation is not just this time where God becomes man, but he has this notion that the incarnation is where man eventually evolves into God. And when man evolves to God, you have the unity of God and man, thus an incarnation. This is a complete distortion of what Christianity has always taught. And why does Telhar do this? In regards to the evolution, he says, it is a general condition to which all theories, all hypotheses, all systems must bow, and which they must satisfy, henceforward in order to be thinkable and true. Why is it, why is evolution the system which all theories must bow to be true? Because Talhard believes that evolution is part of the most fundamental science metaphysics. And since metaphysics applies to all being, all that exists must incorporate the principles of his mystical evolution. And just like the theosophists to believe that this mystical evolution necessitated eugenics, Telhard de Chardin also wrote to Rome asking for eugenics to be incorporated in the church's teaching. Talhard de Chardin also believed in totalitarianism. He said, the modern totalitarian regimes, whatever their initial defects, are neither heresies nor biological regressions. They are in line with the essential trend of cosmic movement. In other cases, he explicitly states his like for Marxism. Now, if any of you have seen this TV series, Star Trek, there is a character in there called the Borg. In Star Trek, they are evil. But this character is almost perfectly what Telhard de Chardin views as the next stages of man's evolution, of man's path to becoming God. The Borg are a creature where they are all united by scientific means. They has share one sort of consciousness. Talhard talks about how later on in man's evolutionary stages, his superhuman state, there will be a universal conscious, consciousness, but still individuals. Now, part of this working toward this unity, this 
universal consciousness, which will then eventually turn into the Omega point, which is the one all-powerful God. Talhar believes that a necessary stage in that is the unifying of God, of man and humanity through very strict totalitarian regimes and governments. And he was very much, that's why he was very much in favor of these, of Marxism and socialism. We see the same also with a theosophist. Here we can see, oh, right here we can see Alice Bailey talking about, Alice Bailey was a theosophist, talking about how communism is a great thing. As we can see, Talhard de Chardin and the theosophist had very similar views. And as we shall see, they were both embraced by Maria Montessori. All right, so here we have come to Maria Montessori. As we said before, she was a theosophist. She actually, at the end of her life, wrote several journal articles for the Theosophy Society in India. One of them was titled, The Child, the Eternal Messiah. Now in the image here, you see Maria Montessori and her son Mario. And in the, this image, Maria Montessori has what's called the third eye. Now the people in India have this symbol because they are Hindus and pagans. And this is an occult symbol. If you are to get this symbol on your forehead through the various rituals, you will have to go to see an exorcist to get rid of it. It is something extremely dangerous. As we can see right here, Maria Montessori was dabbling with this organization and this, this third eye. The third eye is also explicitly spoken about in the writings of Helen Blavatsky, who was the founder of the Theosophist Society. So now we're going to take a little look into Montessori's teaching style and see how it was incorporated by the Theosophists. So the quote we're about to read is written by Annie Besant and her letter, her, her book to India. She states, I am not yet prepared to go as far as the Montessori system in leaving complete liberty to the child because I have not yet tried it. But the main idea is right, that you should help the child to teach himself. This is the great secret of all education, not that you should pour into his brain. So she's saying she's going against the Aristotelian understanding that the child is a blank slate and you fill his brain with knowledge. Not that you should pour into his brain as if it were an empty vessel. The word of Aristotle was blank slate. She's using empty vessel, close enough. You should draw out his powers. Rather, she is saying that you don't teach a child, you don't put knowledge into him, you draw out the knowledge that is already there. That is why Annie Besant likes the teaching style of Maria Montessori. And what did Maria Montessori say? The child unconsciously drinks in divine power, while the reasoning consciousness of the adult is but human. What she is saying is that the child has some sort of special divine knowledge where the adult is inferior because he is merely human. What is a teacher? Here's another um, quote from Annie Besant, the Theosophist. What is a teacher? He is nothing more nor less than an ambassador. Remember, how are you going to teach if you believe that man already has the knowledge or if you believe that man is a blank slate, blank slate and needs to attain and acquire this knowledge? She continues, Madame Montessori has, I believe, realize the fundamental relationship between the teacher and the child. She says that the teacher watches. It is the work of the teacher to watch, not to control, not to give instruction, but to educate, to watch. 
to draw out that which is already there. She's saying that the knowledge is already in the child. She continues. Not that which has previously been put in. Again, she's explicitly condemning the Aristotelian understanding of knowledge, that we need to put the knowledge into the person who's ignorant. She continues. But that which is already there, waiting to be expanded. The knowledge is already in the child. And here's a quote from Maria Montessori saying the same thing in her article for the Theosophist. The task of the new teacher has become much more delicate than that of the old one. The most difficult thing is to make the teacher understand that if the child is to progress, she must eliminate herself and give up those prerogatives that hitherto were considered to be the sacred rights of the teacher. She cannot have any immediate influence either upon the formation or upon the inner discipline of the students, and that her confidence must be placed and must rest in their hidden and latent energies. What are these hidden and latent energies? They can be nothing more than knowledge that pre-exists in the child. But until she is able to resign herself, to silence the voice of all vanity, she will not be able to attain any results. So according to Maria Montessori, to put this knowledge into the child to teach and not draw out is a form of vanity. Now, one has to ask, why did Annie Besant think that the child has this knowledge? Where did it come from? There must be an explanation of this knowledge if it's there, how it got there. She states, a vital contribution of the theosophist to educate is the assertion of the fundamental divinity of man. So this is important for the education of the theosophist and of the gradual deification of man as the process of evolution. This fact, I venture to think, is of vital importance in education. The child is not only an age-old soul, but he is also in essence divine. Now, why does that make him divine? She doesn't explicitly say. What it would appear if you look at the mystical evolution of the Theosophist, remember this is not Darwinian evolution. This is an evolution that is guided by some sort of God, which means that each being, every offspring, is created to be a little more evolved, a little bit higher than the parents it came from. Now, if that's the case, that means that the most highest person in terms of evolutionary perfection is going to be the children because they would have received evolutionary perfection that was slightly better than that of the parents. And in that sense, remember how theosophists believe you are like God? It is not by your holiness, by the grace that's inside of you. Rather, you become holy by being more evolved, by having your nature more like God. In theory, the children are the most evolved and, in a sense, the most divine. Now we can understand Maria Montessori's quote and where it came from. The child unconscious drinks in divine power. She is appears to be repeating the doctrines of the theosophist, that the child is somehow divine, while the reasoning consciousness of the adult is but human. This is completely ridiculous. The only way she could possibly come to this conclusion that the child has divine power is she was involved in some sort of Gnostic or occult group. Maria Montessori also has views of religion. How do we know religion? She says, we must, we must remember that religion 
is a universal sentiment, which is inside everybody and has been inside every person since the beginning of the world. It is not something which must be given to the child. So it's already there. We just have to draw it out. This is modernism. What did Maria Montessori say? It's a sentiment that's already in the child. What does St. Pius X say? This is where here's a quote by St. Pius X. The first actuation, so to say, of every vital phenomenon and religion has its origin, speaking more particularly of life, in a movement of the heart, which movement is called a sentiment. Right here, this quote, this is his condemnation of the errors of modernism, and he's describing what the modernists believe. So they believe that religion is used to a sentiment. He continues, therefore, since God is the object of religion, we must conclude that faith, which is the basis and foundation, is the foundation of all religion, consists in a sentiment. This is what St. Pius X says, is the doctrine of the modernist. Maria Montessori and Pope Pius X both talk about the idea of religion being a sentiment. Maria Montessori was a modernist. Maria Montessori continues, just as language has many expressions, English, Swedish, Swahili, and so forth, so does elevation express itself by way of different creeds, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and many different belief systems in order to communicate with and about God. Now, as Catholics, we believe that all public revelation ended with the last apostle, and it was passed on from generation to generation. That's how we come to know the faith. What is Maria Montessori saying here? Religion is a sentiment from within. You don't know religion by having people tell you. You have this emotion or sentiment that kind of springs forth, and it gives you knowledge about God. Now, different people who have different sentiments will express it in different way. In some cultures, they might call it, express it by Judaism. Some might express it through Buddhism. Some might express it through Christianity. It doesn't really matter how you're expressing it, as long as you're expressing it profoundly and using it to give glory to God. This is completely contrary to the Catholic understanding of religion, because this makes all religions good. The only religion that is good is the one that was given to us by Jesus Christ. Montessori and the Omega Point. So we've seen how Maria Montessori was very much involved in theosophy and embracing all the religions and all her other things that were included by the theosophist doctrines. But she also embraced the Telharian idea of cosmic evolution. Now, the quote I'm about to read is not just Maria Montessori's writing for the Theosophist. This is Maria Montessori's book on psychology. It's called The Absorbent Mind, and it is revered relatively highly by people who study pedagogy. Now, in Maria Montessori's pedagogy, this evolution is found throughout her entire book. And we're not just talking about the Darwinian evolution that is accepted by many academics. Rather, if you remember, the theosophists don't like the Darwinian evolution because it's materialist. What Maria Montessori embraces is mystical evolution. She states, Nor is the only purpose of life to perfect oneself, nor only to evolve. But I guess the purpose of life is to evolve. The purpose of life is to obey the hidden command, which ensures harmony among all. So what she said so far there is that God imposes a purpose on life, which is to evolve into higher life. And then she continues, we are not created only to enjoy the world. We are created in order to evolve the entire cosmos. This is exactly what Telhard Chardin thought, that the whole, of, whole cosmos was evolving into God, or he called the Omega Point. Okay, so let's look at 
how the different sciences can be corrupted through this thinking. So let's look at some of the thinking of Maria Montessori. So in her metaphysics, she has a new principle. She sees the world through and being through the eyes of mystical evolution. Now, when you see all being through mystical evolution, your philosophy of nature or understanding of material being insofar as emotion comes to this idea that why we're created, what is our natural law? Remember, that's part of philosophy of nature. Your monastery states, we are created in order to evolve the cosmos. So that's our natural law. Now that comes down to her psychology. We're created and evolved the cosmos meant that and there's a, there's a guided evolution there to remember every um person uh, or the offspring are designed to be more evolved than their parents because it's a guided evolution it's not just evolution through natural selection so somehow through this process she's come to the conclusion that the child unconscious drinks in divine power while the reasoning consciousness of the adult is but human. So once you understand this psycho psychological principle that the child has divine power, then your whole process of teaching the child is going to be completely corrupt. Let's start with her. Um, Maria Montessori said, she can't have any immediate influence, influence either upon in regards to the teacher. The teacher cannot have any immediate influence either upon the formation or upon the inner discipline of the students and that her confidence must be placed and must rest in their hidden and latent energies what is this hidden and latent energies that the teacher must respect what are these hidden and latent energies other than the divine power that the child conscious drinks and then this goes to what Maria, what Annie Besant said about her method. It is the work of the teacher to watch, not to control, to give instruction, but to educate, to watch, to draw out, which is already there. And that's what Montessori said is, or sorry, well, that's what Annie Besant said is how the teacher ought to instruct a child, not to teach, but to draw out. So cosmic education, Maria Montessori had this idea of cosmic education. Basically cosmic education was this idea that you show the children how all things in the universe kind of work together. The sun, the moon, all the different things were together because the whole universe is kind of one organism and moving toward greater perfection. She states, we use the term cosmic education to refer to an education which is an effective preparation for the new generations to understand how humanity is being drawn towards a unified whole after understanding the maria montessori statement that man is created to involve evolve the cosmos we now have a very clear understanding of the unified whole which cosmic education is desire to teach the children. This cosmic whole as a pre-existent reality, which is constantly unfolding. Rather, we are speaking about elevating human consciousness. Remember what Talhard de Chardin thought? As man is evolving higher, he is becoming, his consciousness is changing, it's becoming unified with everything, it's becoming more conscious. We have the same thing in theosophists too, who believe that as man evolves, his consciousness will change and eventually he'll be a pure spiritual being. So a lot of people, when they hear this and they think there must be something wrong because Maria Montessori wrote a book about the Catholic liturgy. It's actually the Tridentine Mass which is seen by many as a very orthodox liturgy that usually liberals tend not to like. And I think, hmm, because she wrote this very orthodox book, 
it's even published by certain traditional Catholic groups, this appears to be a contradiction with her apparent involvement in theosophy. Could she have been faithful during her youth? Maybe her revolutionary pedagogy was started before her involvement in theosophy. Well, is this book on the liturgy really a contradiction with theosophy? Well, something we need to look at theosophy is that the theosophists don't have any litur liturgy or rituals. And because of this, many theosophists would go into different religions, like Gnostics usually do, like a vampire, and they would go into the religions for the sake of incorporating liturgy and ritual into the religious beliefs. Now, one of these groups was called the Liberal Catholic Church. These are not Catholics who are liberal. This is a completely separate schismatic group. They went to another schismatic group called the Old Catholics, and they had valid people ordained, bishops, theosophists, had their people ordained, and they started their own group with valid bishops and valid priests. And they called this group the Liberal Catholic Church. In the picture to the left, you can see this. They're doing Tridentine Mass. They have all the smells and bells. Their liturgy is very beautiful. But what they have in external beauty, they are completely lacking in internal beauty or doctrinal beauty and orthodoxy. In the picture you can see, though it is a Trinity Mass, there is a woman in the sanctuary. They also had many um, changes in their moral theology. Basically, anything goes morally in terms of the Sixth and Ninth Commandment. And they are also open to the teaching of reincarnation, which is a central doctrine of the Theosophists. They also believe that other religions are capable of bringing about salvation, not just Christianity. Now, we have just shown that Maria Montessori's book on the liturgy is not incompatible with her being a theosophist. But we have still not answered the question, was Maria Montessori a theosophist in her youth? Well, when we look at Montessori's rebellious youth, we can see indications. So earlier in her life, she attended a school for boys. In 1899, which was seven years before she started her new pedagogy, she stated, the woman of the future will have equal rights as well as equal duties. Family life as we know it may change, but it is absurd to think that feminism will destroy maternal feelings. The new woman will marry and have children out of choice, not because matrimony and maternity are imposed on her. So Maria Montessori, who was brought up a Catholic, has this idea that you're not, women are not going to have children because it is part of their duty toward God as wives and mothers. But they are going to do it because it is their whim, because it is their desire. Now, we must think, where did this thinking come from? It didn't come from Catholicism. It must have come from some other source. According to statistical analysis, the feminists living in Montessori's generation, which was a time of first wave feminism, were several hundred times more likely to join the Theosoph Theosophical Society than was the average member of her country's population. So the fact that Maria Montessori was a member of the Theosophy Society cannot be proved. And to be honest, it really doesn't matter. What matters is not that Montessori was a card-carrying theosophist, though she certainly was in her later life. What's important is that in her younger life, she certainly seemed to be embracing the concepts and ideas of theosophy.
not just in her psychology, but even in her morality. Now, Maria Montessori also struck a friendship with the occultist and theosophist, Annie Besant. Montessori's first document involvement in theosophy can be found in Quest magazine and Maria Montessori a biography. Both writings affirm that around 1907, Maria Montessori struck a friendship with the occultist, Annie Besant. And this friendship was struck because Annie Besant came to see Maria Montessori's new pedagogy and was very impressed. Now, we've seen lots of problems with the Montessori method, but there are actually some good things for the Montessori system. I know this because I spent eight years of my life in a Montessori school. Now, one of the things Montessori did really good was math. Now, to understand this, let's understand how the Montessori system works for the most part. So there are times where they kind of give you a presentation and show you how to do things and ask you pondering questions. A lot of the work, work is done through material. So on the left, you can see um, a, a single bead, um, a group of 10, a group of 10 by 10, and a group of 10 by 10 by 10. Now, these physical materials that you work with, for such as mathematics, show and in a very um, uh, practical sense, allow you to touch and really see what the math is doing instead of just having understand it in your head. I'm very much a visual learner. So in many cases, this was very helpful. To the right, a little higher level, probably about third or fourth grade, you see the fractions. Now, instead of just having fractions, you actually have physical materials with fractions. Now, when you would, how you would do this, you, even though supposedly this information is just drawn out of the child, they never really did this. At times they tried, but for the most part, you would have a little card and explain to you what you were supposed to be doing. So it's not that the knowledge was drawn out from you. Rather, you learn through reading instead of having a teacher lecture to you. Then once you learned through that little card that explained the work you're going to do, you would go find your material and use that material and do the math or whatever it is you had to do. Now, sometimes the card wasn't enough to fully explain what you were going to do. So in that case, you would were you supposed to figure it out or have that knowledge drawn out from within you. But if you weren't able to have that knowledge drawn out from you, you just went out and found a teacher and had her show you how to do this. And from my experience, most people went and had the teacher show them how to do it. I almost always had the teacher show me how to do it because it is so much quicker to have the teacher show you than having to reinvent the wheel each time. Now, often in math, a topic I liked, I could just figure it out. But things I disliked, such as grammar, I just had the teacher show me. Now, how can something so distort, with something so distorted, how can something good come from it? Well, the answer lies in chance. And we're talking about chance as defined by Aristotle and later approved this definition by St. Thomas Aquinas. So chance is when you have, let's take a farmer, and he is plowing his field with the intention of plowing his field and growing crops. So the whole purpose and or his whole, all of his actions of plowing the field are ordered for growing crops. Now in growing the crops, he happens to strike some sort of chest. He then, after he struck this chest with his plow, he digs it up, finds out it's full of gold. Now, we would say that the farmer found this chest by chance because the farmer did not plow with the intention of finding a chest. Rather, he plowed the field with the intention of growing crops. 
he just happened to find a chest. So you can see how chance works. Now let's use an example that better characterizes what we see with Maria Montessori. Let's say you're a farmer and you grow tomatoes, only tomatoes in the one field. And you have this idea, the earth likes diversity. If every year I plant a different type of crop in that field, that's going to make the earth happy because it likes diversity and it's gonna give me bigger crops. So you rotate your crops every year and you find out that, oh, the crops are bigger. Now, you could come to the conclusion, and you're probably going to, that, oh, when you rotate your crops, it makes the earth happy, therefore it gets more bigger crops. And you're gonna tell everyone, and everyone's gonna think that, oh, if we plant, if we rotate our crops, we're gonna make the earth happy, and therefore bigger crops are going to occur. However, we actually know that this whole idea of rotating crops, it's called crop rotation, and it works not because it makes the earth happy, because it, different crops prepare the soil with different vitamins and minerals. Now, the same thing is true with Maria Montessori. Though there are certain good things in the materials she created, such as her materials for teaching math and some of the languages, her psychology and understanding of how the child comes to know these truths are still flawed. We must remember that for a lie to be effective, it must be based on some truth. Now there are more defects, so even though there are good things, as I said, the child still needs to be taught. I wasn't the only person who ran into this problem. There were other people who also needed to go to the teacher. It's actually quite frequent when you do something new that was different and you hadn't been taught before. Every, pretty much everyone went to the teacher and had them teach him. They did, they did not just absorb or pull this knowledge out of themselves. Now, as we went into higher Montessori classes, the Montessori method was used less and less. I would say at about fourth grade was when they really started to reduce the Montessori method. By eighth grade, the Montessori method was barely used. Classes such as history, biology, reading comprehension, grammar, writing, a lot of these things can't be taught through the Montessori method. History, you have to lecture, and that is what they did. So in my talk, if you're interested in more knowledge of the Theosophists, I recommend the book False Dawn. It's very good, very helpful by Lee Penn. You can get a free download. Um, the book, The Truth About Talhart, it's available at Internet Archive. And this is a very short, but very concise explanation of Talhart de Chardin and his various writings. And probably the most helpful was the website Catechesis of the Good Shepherd Exposed, or cgsexposed.com. All the research on this website really allowed me to make this presentation and to find all these dangerous things about Maria Montessori, the Theosophist, and as we'll find next week, the many problems with Sophia Cavalletti and the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. All right, are there any questions? Give me one second and I will pull up question. So someone's asking to tell me more about myself. Are you asking about my experience with um, the Montessori method and my time at a Montessori school? Well, I'm not gonna tell you who I am in case this video does go onto YouTube. I do want my identity to be anonymous, but um, I don't have a whole lot more to say about the Montessori school. Do you have any questions? If you'd like to talk to me in person, you can easily find me at, your, at our parish. Um, I would recommend staying away from Montessori schools. 
especially because of the ideology it's based upon. Another thing that's worth um, noting is that the United Nations loves the Montessori school. Uh, the Montessori method is actually taught throughout the India amongst many of the um, Hindus. They, they embrace this method because they really embrace this idea that the knowledge is within the child and being drawn out of them. So yeah, I think really the whole Montessori school, because it's just based on such uh, a bad foundation, I think we should stay completely away from it. I don't see any reason to embrace the Montessori system. Now, some of the things they use, such as their materials, I think could definitely be embraced, like the mathematics and those fractions I showed you. Those could very easily be embraced, but the entire Montessori school and method I don't see any reason to embrace it. Someone asked, when do I think the cosmos will reach its perfection? I'm guessing it's a joke. When did Talhard Ashardin think that the cosmos is reaching its perfection? I don't know when in his life he believed this, but uh, just type in Talhard Ashardin Omega Point into Google, and I'm sure that will give you information. That was a very, uh, and that was one of the things he was really known for was the idea of the Omega point, a man evolving into God. Yeah, so someone said that they believe the system is very anti-hierarchical. This is completely correct. So as I in the Montessori school, you're actually taught to call the teacher by their first name. And this was a really bad habit I got into because I would call my mother's friends by their first name, which is actually very rude, but um, it was a habit you learned at the Montessori school, because really the, the child is superior to the adult. I don't know that Talhar knew Maria Montessori. I don't have any knowledge of their connection. It's very possible. Now, next week, we're going to talk about Sophia Cavalletti, who is one of the founders of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. And in one of her notes, she talks about how Talhar de Chardin was one of the great theologians that she embraced. All right, thank you everyone. If you have any more questions, um, you, you know, if you come to our parish, you can easily find me. I'm going to uh, cancel the session, but um, God bless. And the website, Catechese of the Good Shepherd Exposed, has a lot of great resources that can really help you with um, understanding the problems of Maria Montessori as well as the many problems of Caddy Keys of the Good Shepherd. I hope you enjoyed the talk.